you, Doralee, and the other teachers. And um, uh, yeah, thank you for, for this opportunity to practice together and to and to be a part of this experiment of, of you know, this interface between Zoom and in-person. Um, yeah, we, we, all, we all are so resilient and adaptable. We'll figure it out. I will also uh, thank you for that beautiful introduction, Doralee, too. I, I do feel connected to your sangha um, through Doralee and through um, many years, actually, of working on the, on the Jizo ceremony together with Doralee and hearing about how it manifests in your sangha or uh, has been showing up and utilized there. And, and hearing about other parts of your practice as well. And, and I'll say a little bit more about some of the identities I have, but I, I thought usually, I think often when I give Dharma talks, things get kind of complicated in my mind. So I kind of build up and build up and then I get to a point. <laughs> I thought tonight, maybe because it's later than usual, I thought, um, I think I'll just tell you what I want to say or what I want to offer. Not even what I want to say. I'd like to make an offering to, to all of us, actually. I want to include myself. And what I'd like to offer from the tradition of, of Zen as, as a person who's, you know, I feel deeply privileged to be able to help take care of this tradition, um, is that to tenderly and compassionately care for ourselves and to make, make like a discipline of that is the foundational activity of bodhisattva response to suffering in this world. That's what I want to offer. You know, from the tradition as I see it, there's, it's um, the possibility of understanding that, the, that there's a non-duality between caring for this one that each of us has as a body and an embodied being and caring for the world is, is uh, it's not just that they're connected, it's that the extent to which we care for ourselves and truly offer ourselves genuine compassion is the is the extent of our capacity to offer compassion in the world. It's like the taproot of bodhisattva activity. And uh, when we skip over the self, when we leap into compassionate activity in the world or compassionate response to suffering, missing ourselves, we are enacting, we're kind of, especially in the United States, we are... Um, participating in systems of dehumanization and violence that are very prominent, at least in my experience in the United States. So white supremacy culture and capitalist culture and the way that they go together, to me, perpetrate a lot of dehumanization. And when we forget about the self, um, even when we're trying to be nice, you know, <laughs> we're forgetting, we're, we're, we're actually in some way amplifying that that trauma actually of, of dehumanization that is so deeply rooted in the United States again in my experience so maybe I could just <laughs> I could just stop there so you can stop me at any point because I feel like that's really what I want to take up with you and discuss like I think it I can imagine you know Zen folks being like but you know we don't elevate the self and there is no self and like stop that with the self <laughs> Um, and it's true, we don't want to inflate the self, we don't want to make caring for ourselves bigger, but we don't want to leave it out. Um, and that's what I want to offer. Um, I'll just name a couple identities that, that I carry so you know some of the conditioning that's shaped me. I, I am American, I grew up in the Northeast. I'm a cisgendered female identified person. Um, I'm white according to like, you know, the way, <laughs> the racial descriptions in the United States. I'm also a parent and my children range in age from 18 to nine. And um, being a parent profoundly impacts me. And my children are, are uh, the most intimate and I would say, um, yeah, most profound teachers in my life. And and I'm, as, as Dorley mentioned, my partner, uh, husband is Charlie Percorny, who talked to your, to your group in June. 
So with this idea, this invitation of uh, engaging in the non-duality of self and the world, I want to bring up a story that I, that is one of my favorite koans that I love very much. And actually it involves a, a monk named Ditsong. And Ditsong is the Chinese way of saying Jizo, actually. So the same characters in Chinese is Ditsong, Japanese is Jizo. And the translation in English of those is um, the um, Earth Womb Bodhisattva, or Kushita Garba is the original. And he has that name uh, because he was named after the temple where he taught. So Ditsong is the teacher in this, and um, Shushan is a student. And uh, Shushan comes to Ditsong's little temple and says, and Ditsong asks him where he comes from. And, and Shushan says, I come from the south. And Ditsong says, well, how is Buddhism in the South these days? And Shushang says, there is extensive discussion. <laughs> People are doing lots of Dharma engagement in the South. And then Ditsong says, well, how can that compare to me here planting fields and making rice to eat? And Shushang says, well, what can you do about the world? I added that emphasis. <laughs> I imagine him being a young student and seeing this teacher in a temple kind of remote and doing his own thing and um, being like, how is this saving the world? How is this responding to the suffering in the world? And Ditsang replies, what do you call the world? Ditsang is also famous for the, the, the koan wherein he responds to a student. He asks the student who's going on pilgrimage, where are you going? And the student says, I'm going on pilgrimage and he says, why? Or, you know, what, what are you doing on pilgrimage? And the student says, I don't know. And Ditsong says, uh, not knowing is most intimate. So this is the same teacher, if you've heard that one. Not knowing is most intimate. And what do you call the world? So I hear this going as an invitation. Um, for us to inquire as students, so us as students of, of, the, of the Buddha way, what do we call the world? Like what do we mean by that? And, and what is, and then that can open into like, what, what is our sphere of impact and, and uh, care and engagement? And what is and like what is the relationship between our sphere of activity and engagement and what we would call the world? And are those things connected in our minds and in our hearts, or are they separate? No. And I don't hear him as saying something very specific. I, I, for me, this koan has always functioned as an invitation. Like, well, what do I call the world? What do I mean by that? And, and how does my, you know, the limited sphere of impact and activity that I have, how does that meet, engage with the world? The, the idea that the world is singular is a delusion, <laughs> a pretty big one, actually. I mean, the idea actually, truly, that anything is singular is a delusion. As I was thinking about this talk this morning, I was thinking, you know, if we even we say, like, let's say humanity. So we can have some picture, we probably, I don't know who could picture seven point something billion people, but we can say humanity. And also if we say that, we can be conscious that like right now, right now, humanity is in flux. People are dying, people are being born. And yet we still have a sense, so that is a thing that is like moving and changing, but we can have a sense of what we mean by humanity. And the world similarly is just like, why is it? <laughs> You know, the world similarly is a constant arising of, of engagement and conditions and complexity. It doesn't, and you know, and, and in, in the Genjo Khan, Dogen points to this when he points to everything is like this. He talks about how if you go out to an ocean and you see a circle, what you see is a circle of water if there's no land around. But then he clarifies, like, that's just what you see, but you can know you know, in your bodhisattva heart, you can know that the other features of oceans and mountains are infinite in variety. Whole worlds are there. And then he goes on to say, this is not only true around you, but also directly beneath your feet or in a drop of water. 
So everything, and you know, this is this is really um, this is a, an engagement of of what we off or what often comes up as translated as emptiness. And I think um, Thich Nhat Hanh uses the term interbeing. You know, we could equally use the term connectedness. And when we when we really spend some time with that connectedness, um, we can feel into all that we are, each of us as individual beings, and all that everything around us is, is a constant flux of engagement of conditions. You know, we like to try to fix ourselves into being something solid and, and uh, singular, but we're not. <laughs> we're a flux, you know. And so I, I hear this as Ditsong saying, you know, it, it, right, so if we're going to take care of the world, if we're going to do something about the world, if we're going to save the world, uh, what does that mean and what does it look like? And is the activity of, you know, waking up and making ourselves breakfast apart from that? Or is it, or is that actually a piece of the fabric of the caring for the world? In, in my experience, you know, again, I, and there are many more identities besides the ones that, that I have named, but in my experience, I, I've grown up in the, predominantly in the United States and, um, and yeah, I would say, I would say I've been deeply impacted by dominant culture, which is capitalist culture, uh, a, a culture of white supremacy. And so I mean that in a, a semi-neutral way, I'm, you know, I, that makes sense to everyone. I don't mean I was raised by like neo-Nazis. <laughs> I mean like the way that that white people and lives and bodies and needs of those people have been elevated above the needs of other people. Um, that's that was deeply impactful on how I was socialized, um, along with many many other people. I think you know even people in my life who are friends of of color acknowledge pretty much everyone in the sphere of the United States and, and also beyond the United States is impacted by white supremacy culture and, and capitalist culture. So it's very strong emphasis, you know, on um, worth being tied to money and transactions and uh, objectified stuff. So my experience growing up, even though I, I was, I would say I was fairly well loved as a human being, um, but societally, worth was tied to something external and something you had to earn and over and over again, right? Like, so this was my experience. <laughs> and the, the, you, there was no resting in like, ah, you know, like I belong, I'm inherently valuable. Not in the society as I experienced it. It was like, no, you got to prove that over and over again. And in fact, you know, the minute you might feel like you have some worth, it could be taken from you <laughs> because... You know, I don't know. They could take it. I don't know how who was going to take it. I would, you know, I would take it from my own self because of how deeply uh, acculturated I was. So there's all this like striving for external validation. Work. I come from uh, from New England, where it's really common uh, in New England for people to meet you. It's like, hi, what's your name? What do you do? <laughs> um, I've noticed people don't do that in California as much, or that was my, by my experience anyway. I think in part because where I live, lots of people are pot farmers. <laughs> and for a long time, like it was like, you don't want to ask because it wasn't legal for a really long time. Um, but I think this, this, um, and then, you know, strangely, I guess psychologically it, it does make sense, but strangely, then there's all this like puffing up of the self while at the same time, there's a hollow sense of self-worth, right? So that, and I would say, especially again, for, for people who are socialized as white, there's this like puffing up of, of our self-importance and, and, you know, to uh, blotting out our perception of other people's experience. Um, but really that comes from a place of tremendous um, insecurity. I talk with people, I get to talk with people all the time. It's a great part of being a priest in my life. And I, I don't, I don't meet many people who grew up in the United States who love themselves. I can say that pretty clearly. 
in fact, mostly I, I meet people who really don't, when I'll say we, like I'll include myself there, we, we don't, we don't come from a place of self-love. I wasn't taught that. And I don't say that, you know, for to be pitied. I just say it again, a little bit neutrally. And I grew up um, in a, the sphere I was in was, was fairly, um, people were very religious actually where I grew up. Most people had a religious affiliation. It was until I, I moved to the Midwest for college and I was like, oh, some people are just nothing. <laughs> and I grew up in a sphere that was sort of Catholic. A lot of my friends were also Jewish. Um, and there were ideas about being good. And if I now can name it, one of the ideas about being good meant that you worried more about other people than yourself. And in fact, actually to notice your own needs or pain was, was actually taught to be selfish. So I don't know if that was everyone's acculturation here, but I, but I, I imagine some of you have bumped into that, those systems of culture that say, goodness means you know you you're completely self-forgetting actually and you're and you're always looking outward to the other um so i think bodhisattva vows and bodhisattva practice uh and the middle way really support us to include our precious unique selves in the field of care that we are offering in the world and I want to be careful to say, like, not to elevate us, you know, not to make my needs higher, but not to diminish them either. You know? I like this term of like right-sizing the self, but get the self, get the get the particular being that each of us is in the equation of the suffering that we are responding to and tending. Um. So we, can, so we can hold a sense of the suffering in the world, like attuning to the suffering of other people and even in the world, whatever, whatever we mean by that, is like, yes, we should keep an awareness of that, but we don't want to, but there's something goes awry or something becomes really unskillful, I think, when we use it to uh, completely obscure a sense of our own suffering and pain. Um, and, I, and, and this partly comes from a number of conversations I'm having, I've had lately where, um, with this, with, with, you know, the strange inner, what it, like the strange liminal space we're all in around the pandemic or pandemics, <laughs> let me say pandemics, you know, there's the pandemic of the virus of COVID and then there's the pandemics of, of racial violence that are not so new, but, but there was, you know, there's been more awareness, more generalized awareness around it. And people, um, I keep having conversations with folks who are in pain in, in their process of re-emerging into a lot of social contact or, you know, making this transition um, into, into more connection with others. And, but they don't, want to attend to that because they're aware as good bodhisattva people many of them are uh, practitioners that there's people who have it much worse than they do and i i get that um and you know that we should, we need to have attention to the pain that's in the world and if we're in the united states it depends on where we are but but there are countries that you know haven't even begun to vaccinate there's not even an option right there are places that are just the death and devastation is is like a is like a rolling tide so as bodhisattvas we can hold that in our heart mind awareness you know and don't don't put that down but don't blot out that right here in my own sphere I'm maybe having a hard time re-engaging with the world and actually I, you know a number of a number of these conversations are people, folks like longing for social connection going to see friends and realizing um it's really awkward <laughs> and I think a piece of that is you know we've all been very deeply changed 
And I don't think we even know how yet. And, um, and again, from both, from all of the pandemics, you know, we've been, we are changed and we don't know how, and then we're going to see one another. And then in all that, in that confusion, a lot of, a lot of what's happening is like regressing to very old ways of interacting, which, you know, we kind of decided we don't want to do anymore. <laughs> But here you are in a social situation and, you know, I, you know, just start playing by the old rules and, and there's pain. And, you know, no, is that the same pain as people who are losing multiple family members? No, it isn't. But is that a pain that is real and needs attention and, and has something to teach us? Yes, it is, you know, and, and that's, and holding the balance of that, I think is um, very difficult. And, and, and again, I want to offer, though, I believe it's a taproot of our practice to find that dynamic balance and engagement. Um, I was talking to someone recently and asked if, asked if they knew the kind of Buddhist cosmological story of what it means to be human and they hadn't heard it, although they, they are a practitioner for a long time. So um, I thought, well, maybe people don't know this. So I thought I would just offer this story that, that transcends Zen. It actually goes way back into Buddhism before Zen. That there's an image, and I'm sure some of you heard this, but there's an image of what it means to be human. And this is the metaphor that's used for obtaining a human life. There's an ocean, the size of an ocean. There's a regular sized turtle who is blind in one eye, and there's a ring, like about this big, that the turtle's head could fit through if he could find it. And this, and this visually impaired turtle, the chances of it putting its head up through that ring in this ocean uh, describes how rare it is to obtain a human life. Have folks heard that before? No. Oh, no. I know I'm only saying that, but... Okay, so it's a good one. <laughs> and it's like kind of beautifully specific and weird. There are actually, there are reasons for its imagery, but I think it's a really important one um, to help us right size ourselves. And actually, you know, without getting too much into the, the you know, the operations of, of sexual reproduction, just scientifically speaking, the possibility of each of us being who we are with the specific genetics that we have is extremely rare in this universe, right? Like we are miraculous beings. I'm sorry that I didn't look back at it. I actually Googled once like, well, statistically, what's the chances that you are you? <laughs> and I found a great article wherein the person talked about the blind turtle in the ocean. So it was a person who was a Buddhist practitioner who had actually checked this out and did the statistics. It's, it's very small. And I offer that in part because it's, you know, a little delightful, but it's also like important to remember. And, and I don't, you know, I'm guessing that there aren't any children here, you know, by the time we come into adulthood, we really are the person who is most responsible for the well-being of the being that we are, you know, if if we can be. And of course, we we depend on one another and we receive help. And but we but I do think we need. I don't. I have never felt encouragement enough to take that responsibility seriously. Be like, you know, it's no one else's job to say like. Actually, I can't do that thing that you want me to do because it's too much. You know, that's my job. And and to care lovingly for this this one. Um, and again, not and and to f really pay close attention, not to elevate, not to puff up, not to make this one any more important than anyone else. It's just that, truthfully, we have the opportunity to care for the one that we are more than other people because we are around ourselves <laughs> all the time, right? Like, this is the body that's here. I recently, I'm sorry, uh, this is a very, it's so mundane that I, I hesitate to share the example, but it, it was pretty profound for me. Um, 
that recently I, I, um, my son is nine, our son is nine years old and I'd like to, we have a nice little nighttime routine for the most part. It's really precious, you know, and he's, he's getting very long. Nine-year-olds start to, you know, <laughs> they're moving out of their sweet roundness there. And you can see these little glimmers of adolescence coming and I can feel it. Maybe also because, because I have an 18-year-old, like I know how quickly this goes, you know, so I'm like, I'm savoring the nine-year-olds. So we have our nighttime routine and I really, and also we want to get him in bed and we want to keep him healthy. We want him well-rested. And so the end of the day comes and for most parents, you know, it's a tiring time. <laughs> At the end of the day, you're kind of crawling. Pretty much every parent I talk to is like, you know, teeth brushing. And they're like, oh, teeth brushing. Like this thing you have to make happen when you have no more energy for it, you know. And usually actually like, he, can, he can do his own teeth now. He's good. But it's my own teeth that I, I like, I'm brushing my teeth and I want to get upstairs and I want to help him to bed. And I want this thing over with of my teeth brushing. And sometimes like often, actually, I'll confess this is an avowal. I, I think I, I really should floss my teeth, but I'm going to give myself, I'm going to like give myself a pass <laughs> as if that's something good. It's going to be three minutes extra in this day. You know, that's how tired I am. And, um, recently something happened where I was brushing my teeth and I could, and I, you know, it's practice. I, I, that I was, a, I woke up to my bodily experience and I could feel the resistance in my body to my activity. I wanted to be somewhere else. I didn't want to be here brushing my teeth. I want to be upstairs. I want this to be over. And something just went clicky in, in my mind. And I was like, you know, I'm only going to get to brush my teeth so many times. You know, and I think this, this actually connects in with, with skillful or right view, like the first fold of the April path. Some, the truth of my impermanence was available to me and the resistance in my body was available to me. And suddenly it just like broke loose. And I was like, oh, this might take another 10 minutes, but I am going to like care for my teeth. I'm going to floss. Then I even went on to wash my face. <laughs> it was like, I was telling, I was telling a friend about this. I was like, I felt like Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, like I, I fully was there for a moment. I could, and it really was, and something happened in that moment of caring for my physical body and the preciousness of that opportunity. And, and then what was really cool. So this wasn't, you know, this isn't just about my oral hygiene. When I got upstairs, I was available to my son. My heart was available. I didn't make it upstairs all clenched and tight, you know, and it's, these are, it's pretty subtle, but boy, is it different, you know? And so it, it, I just wanted to offer that again, as mundane of an example as that is, but I, and I don't feel like that's something I've accomplished. I do, I feel like that's, the, that's the support of Sangha and Buddha and Dharma, you know, showing up in a human life. Like, wait a second, wait a second. There isn't anywhere else to be. This, my life matters. And if I, and, and if I can't care for myself, I will not be able to extend that loving regard to other people. And I really want to, you know, the world, it turns out, you know, the world, this vast thing, the world is, is each of us in our, in, in moment by moment and interaction by interaction. And, um, and more and more, I feel like this piece of, of leaving out our, you know, not a narcissistic or inflated sense of self, but a, but a preciousness of our human life. Um, yeah, I want to ask us in Sangha to support that for ourselves and for one another and really mean it, you know, take the time that you need, take the time to figure out the AV stuff, you know, take, it's okay. It's all right. In a song, in a Sangha environment, it's like, here's the refuge we can offer one another. No one's judging you. Or, you know, if we are, we'll work with it. <laughs> it's on us. So that I, I'm almost done. And then we, I'd love to hear from you. Um, 
I did want to, the last the, the last thing I want to offer is that we just um, you know particularly in this time of transition, which truthfully I think is probably going to last a couple centuries. <laughs> I to, in my gut I feel like the United States this culture this you know and this culture as if that's one thing, but you know the vastness of this culture has entered into a transitional time that that will take centuries to work out, but we get to participate in it. We get to participate in the reckoning with the histories of dehumanization and violence. We get to do that, you know, on, on large scales, like, yes, be involved with policy and, and politics and help make sure everyone can vote. And, you know, that's not political, that's a moral issue, I think. Um, but we also get to do that on, on as subtle and subtler levels into the depths of uh, conditioning in our own being and uproot the dehumanization we find there. And I want to just, uh, if you haven't heard of, of this concept, uh, and I want to do this carefully, let's see. So, so there's, a, there's a wonderful thing called the nap ministry. Have people heard of the nap ministry? Like taking mm -hmm. a nap. It's led by a woman named uh, Trisha Hersey. She's the Nat Bishop. Um, and it comes, so the reason I want to be very tender and careful with how I present this is because I'm, I'm a woman, a white woman. <laughs> and this is coming out of black liberation theology and, uh, and also in feminist theology. And, um, and it's about, so for her as a black American, uh, it's a practice of engagement that reclaims rest and, and, you know, the, we can all understand how in, for, for Black Americans, for African Americans, whose labor and energy was stolen, you know, vividly with slavery, but then also has, has been stolen continually since then, um, this reclamation of rest is actually an, a revolutionary act, and it's a, a, a practice of repair. So it's very, something very specific um, for people who are black identified in the United States. And, I, and to me, there's something, there's such a deep teaching there for everyone who is impacted by white supremacy culture, which is, and everyone who's impacted by, you know, because slavery too was just part of this machine of capitalism, right? Like such a warped aspect of it. So for all of us who have had our humanity impacted by these systems, there's this offering that rest is as a reparation. I went to a really beautiful uh, like panel that Reverend Angel Kittle Williams and Resma Menikin and a number of other folks were on that basically, I think it was called Rest is, as Revolution, where these ideas were there. And I'll just see if I can put these into the, into the chat. So just as an offering, um, there's both the, the website for the NAP ministry and then also an interview. Um, you can find the audio of it. This was just a transcript of it um, that, that Trisha Hersey, the NAP bishop, did with um, Brittany Patnett Cunningham on a podcast called Undistracted. But there's, there's something in there. there there's a teaching that she, that's being offered here in that practice that I think is again like speaks to us as bodhisattva practitioners it's about it's about slowing down and noticing the body and noticing care she also talks in there about she's she was inspired by her grandmother who um who had three jobs i think was maybe one generation removed from slavery and she said her grandmother would sit on the couch and and close her eyes and all the, there were a lot of grandkids, a lot of the grandkids kind of knew to respect that space <laughs> when the grandmother was resting, but they would, but she would say, what are you doing? What are you doing grandma? And she's, and her grandmother would reply, I'm waiting on a word. And what, what she was talking about was that rest wasn't just a place of, of uh, restoration. It was a place of connection with her ancestors and connection with guidance. And again, I want to offer that because if we're moving so fast, you know, if we're, if we're, and if we're, if all of our effort and care is outward, 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 there are things that we're missing spiritually even. 
But like we need to make enough quiet and rest and tenderness and care inwardly to, to be able to, you know, hear a word, to be able to feel connected, to have a sense of ourselves as impermanent beings. That is very hard to do when we're rushing because it's, it's impactful and profound, you know, to feel our own impermanence. It's disturbing even, you know, but it's important. So I just want to offer these thoughts to you all. And then in this, I feel like this time is both like tender and volatile that we're in and, and maybe it always has been, but it's so amplified now that we take, that we go slowly, you know, that we support one another to do that. And that we, um, and that we take good care of ourselves and support one another in taking good care of ourselves so that we can appropriately and skillfully respond to the suffering of the world. very much for your kind attention. And I would, I, I don't know if you have some formal way of doing question and, and, and discoveries, but please, uh, I look forward to hearing any thoughts you have on this. Am I still pinned? I, I hear Lizzie. Yeah, you do like that. So you can hear me and I can hear you, right? Yes, yeah. I can hear you. Can you tell me, can you, just give me a tiny description of yourself. I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Raphael. And uh, I've been here with uh, Valley Streams since I got out of prison uh, in 2017. And I've been here ever since. And uh, I don't think I will be here, but who knows? Uh, so I, I really, uh, I, I was. I'm not going to say I was triggered by by the talk that you gave, but it, it certainly did uh, bring up a lot of emotions, a, a lot of thoughts, a lot of feelings about the world we're living in. And uh, I, I really appreciate that you allowed for vulnerability in sharing and also in listening, because I, I do feel vulnerable now. And what kind of a world are we living in? I was trying to adapt to a, a, a world that was very violent, was very deadly, inhumane. And while trying to adapt to that, I realized that I would never be able to fully adapt to any of these uh, painful, suffering moments that we continuously uh, either we, we either created ourselves or maybe natural disaster. This, this latest pandemic is supposed to be a natural disaster in our lives in the world. Uh, and so I define this world as a ball of confusion. I define this world as a very violent trap that we're in. Uh, I personally have uh, been uh, a victim, not only of myself, but a victim of a system that did not listen to me, did not want to help me. And uh, it really goes back to my family, it really goes beyond the family, the transgenerational effect, not only of slavery, but a culture of uh, 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 the loss of identity. As, as a human being, you know, I, I've been defined as someone that is black, and others have defined themselves likewise. And so we have an identity crisis. And where do we go from there? And so, so many levels of trying to gain an understanding. I went from being individualistic, uh, and then I, I began to learn about being non-dualistic, but then there's the uh, ideal of pluralistic, being interdependent. And so, so much about your talk, uh, I think that we, we should have you back so that we can have a part two and a part three, because it's, it's very, uh, it's very needed, not only in my life, 
But we need these kind of thoughts. We need to be able to put ourselves, the self, in a place where we understand, and through that understanding, we reach a place where we start caring. And in caring, we start doing. Um, I don't like, and I don't want to be attached to not liking. I don't want to be attached to the anger that it uh, arouses. But I do not like to identify myself as anything as a non-human being. And when I start calling myself black or anything else, then I'm moving away from embracing who I really am. And I'm going towards somewhere that I'm not gonna be able to, to uh, understand and be able to control. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, any identity is too small. I think that's true. Yeah, any identity, right? Like it's saying, it's like saying the world, right? It's just too small. It's too small. What we are is, is so vast beyond like we don't even know what we are actually <laughs> i think this is an important part that our practice can help us tolerate like we the vastness of what each of us is is so profound um, and i and i also want to honor the, your expression of uh, yeah in being in vulnerability so difficult at, to get it you know I, I as a white person i'm like oh, i can't get it right it's like i can't get it right <laughs> and uh and i appreciate that there are spaces where we can try to be in vulnerability together i'm currently like really feeling the absence of being able to see <laughs> like, like, oh, i don't know how that lands but i hope i hope that uh Thank you for sharing and engaging with me. Yeah. And uh, uh, Biba, I see your hand. Yeah, there's a question from uh, Remote Land. We're going to hear from Peter. Peter, can you try to unmute yourself? So, Peter from Zoom is going to be speaking now. Peter, you have to unmute yourself. Can you hear me? Yes. Pin them. Oh, okay, very good. I want to just suggest that one of the reasons why so many of us love, say, the Olympics or sports on TV is that we get to see the score. We get to see the whole game. We get to know what the score is. And in general, in the world, we don't get to know what the score is. Certainly the media may try to portray it, but we really can't see the score. And I think of national health care and I think, what's my relation to national health care? Well, I can take care of myself. And that is about as well as I could do. I might even be able to lead a hike and bring people on the hike. But that I see as my connection to the world is like to improve national health care. I'm going to improve the health of the, the 20 odd individuals in my community or at least myself. And it's an act of faith that that's how I'm connected to the world. I take care of my little tiny atom within the whole giant molecule of the world. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. And, you know, keep, keep an eye on the, on the, the bigger picture. <laughs> Thank you. We can hear from Biba now if you'd like to unmute yourself. No, 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 there's someone live in the live audience first. Oh, I apologize. That's okay. Sorry, right, Pete has a question. Well, is it, can we let Biba go? <laughs> is that okay? Or you go back and forth? Is there a. Oh, we have someone uh, live and then we'll have Biba if I that's see. all right. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say that I, I actually, my first time here, 
Um, but I can relate to your comment of um, not feeling like, um, like in order for you to be enough, you have to um, have a certain standard or, or meet certain guidelines or have a certain job or, you know, it's kind of, um, it's almost like this competition in your daily living where uh, everybody's trying to outdo one another and it's exhausting. Um, and, uh, and, and I can see, I can see that um, in the, throughout the family and the kids as they're growing up, they're, that's what they're learning and that's what we're throwing out into the world and it's, um, and it's a scary thought of just everybody trying to outdo one another rather than just um, embracing one another and just being. So, um, so thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, competition, like, like, or as Peter was pointing to, like wanting the score. Um, as practitioners, when when the mind of comparisons arising, look for the duality. <laughs> it is definitely there. It is. It's a mind of separation, and a mind of hierarchy, actually, and and uh, and usually, there's threads of dehumanization in it. Okay, let's see, but I think I can, can I, does that work? Yeah, here we go. Okay. All right. I think y'all can hear me. So thank you for the talk. Um, there was two things that I wanted to say. So the first thing is the, the toothbrushing and the flossing, like... <laughs> That really stood out to me because you were saying how the more that you're care for yourself, the more able that you can care for others. And it's so true. Like when you're giving your energy to other people, like whether you're here at the temple and you're like one of the leaders or even like within other religious places or even within a job when you're above people, it's like you have to care, you know, because, you know, especially if you have like a manager, right, or a boss who doesn't care about you, like you can feel the difference. And yeah. So you just reminded me to care for myself more. So thank you for that. And um, also another thing I just wanted to say is I found this quote earlier and I wanted to share it with you all. So human abuse and atrocity isn't only committed by monsters and psychopaths. It could be an ordinary person just doing their job, just following orders, just doing what they are told, just trusting the experts. So I just wanted to share that with you guys because every single day is a spiritual battle. You never know what you're fighting against. So it's good to look at things and say, is this for our good, our greater good? Or is it just good for this place, this little bubble? And you just have to think about it like that. So. Power's in our hands. It always has and it always will be. So thank you. And brush your teeth tonight, y'all. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. One of the things, you know, I know that that Doralee has engaged around this as, as well. Um, as as white folks who are interested in racial equity and racial justice, one of the things that I think practice supports me in is, is naming, I have, you know, monstrous voices in my head. Like I have been socializing racism. It's, 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 it's like, it's, it's not okay, but it is like, I don't know if, if I engage with that as like, um, yeah, I, I just really appreciate that what you're bringing me about, about like it, it can be it can be a very decent looking person who can inflict 
tremendous harm. Um, and I think for those of us who are socialized in, in for positions of privilege, we can inflict harm no matter, it doesn't, you know, with tremendously good intentions. And, um, and getting okay with knowing that and being like, oh, and I would like to hear when I do that. I do want that feedback. Uh, I do want to know. I would like to change that. It doesn't turn me into a bad person that has no, that, you know, I think one of the things for me is also to see like the good, bad thing. Like if I, if I'm not good, I'm bad. You know, instead of like, no, no, <laughs> if I'm not good, I'm human, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah, and some, and some, I can cause harm, you know, in large part because of how I've been socialized and, uh, and I do, and I want to know, and I feel supported in practice to know and grow from that and change it. I'm not trash myself, and maybe that's what I'm, I'm not trash myself when I call you know be like oh it's so bad. Sorry, was there someone in at Valley Streams? Invite um, anyone else who would like to speak? Just a couple more people. Well, I have something I wanted to share. Can you hear me? No. Uh, yeah. Who is that? It's Dora Lee. Can you hear me? Dora Lee. Okay. Yes. I took my mask off. Um, I know there's something that's happened for me during this COVID time where, uh, I don't know, I just started eating more slowly. I started cooking more. Um, and I, this doesn't always happen, but there are times when something in me just says, I just want to eat my lunch, you know, and not to do anything else. And that feels like this very primitive, you know, taking care of myself. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> Attune the attunement. And, and, you know, that every lunch is an opportunity to express love. Even if it's just you making lunch for yourself, by yourself. Yes, thank you.